can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need. Good morning. And welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. We're here on PRN.FM. Mondays, if you're in New York, <clears throat> Mondays at 10 a.m., but our listeners are all around the globe, so it could be any time. And you can find our back shows at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N is a Nancy, dot com. And... We've got some interesting guests on our past shows. Uh, Luis Serena talking about artificial intelligence. Boy, is that taking off. Uh, has anybody tried Google Translate? So you take, grab a paragraph of text in English, put it in Google, it's translate.google.com, put the English text and translate it to Chinese, and then Trans, who knows what that is, right? Unless you're Chinese. Then put the Chinese in and translate it back to English. And oh my God, it comes back as totally accurate literature. I mean, it really works. Six months ago, it came back as gibberish. <laughs> and you would spend hours trying to fix it. So Google has uh, updated with Neural Nets, its uh, translation service in for about six languages, and there's over a hundred in there, so <clears throat> the others they're doing one by one. But this artificial intelligence stuff, you know, like self driving cars, and you know, that's like apparently coming fast, like <laughs> already there. We spoke with Bob Walter, the Joseph Campbell Foundation, Boca Tavalis, Futurist. Uh, Natasha Vita Moore, sort of the poster person for transhumanism. I work on an interesting project, uh, Timeship. You'll find us at timeship.org. O-R-G. I got to remember, we didn't, we couldn't get calm. And uh, it's a, a cryonics facility. We have 800 acres in Texas with uh, some beautiful buildings, and we'll be starting with our. Uh, first research facility, and our backers—they uh, <laughs> don't want—they don't want to die, <laughs> and they spend a lot of money on finding out how to stop aging, and, and for real, not you know, not face cream to get rid of wrinkles, but uh, literally stop aging. One of the theories is that. We're going to talk about the Enlightenment today, but in my free association style of wandering, it might take time to get there. So one of the theories is that there are things called telomeres at the end of each chromosome, and each time a cell reproduces, the telomeres get shorter, and they protect the DNA in the chromosome from damage. It's that damage that causes aging. I don't really... No, that's the, you know, that's one theory. So there are drugs that will stop the telomeres from getting shorter. So the people sponsoring our project have pioneered that research. And so they don't want to age, but if they do, uh, they'll be frozen. And we're doing the next generation cryonics facility for 
freezing people. So that's one of the projects I work on. We'll have the architect of the project on one of these days, one of our upcoming shows. And so that whole field, you know, like, okay, <laughs> think it through. Uh, you're 80 years old, you die of cancer, you get frozen. Okay. Then they thaw you out, revive you. You've got this 80-year-old cancer-ridden body. To get rid of the cancer, you're still 80 years old. So... They've got to do more, you know, like uh, clone you a new body and transplant your brain into it. That's that's how these people think. <clears throat> if you look at uh, online today, I saw discussions of embodied AI, embodied intelligence. It's your body is as much you as uh, the circuitry in your brain. And so AI won't work until it's embodied. Well, that's something to think about. But in the meantime... What do you do? Well, you know, clone you a new youthful body that won't age or download yourself into a chip. <laughs> then you won't age at all. <laughs> there was a novel a while back about like 100 billion people living on one chip. I didn't read it. I bought it. You know, <laughs> I'm of the school that if you put the book next to your on your night table, maybe you'll absorb it by osmosis. Uh, that's the hope. Anyway, uh, so the general term for thinking like that is transhumanism. And Natasha Vita Moore is sort of the poster person for transhumanism. And then just last week, we had on John David Ebert, cultural critic. And we were talking about French postmodernist thinkers. And we're going to have him on again next week. So we'll continue that discussion, go into a little more depth of what it all means. And uh, actually, that segues into what I wanted to talk about today. And that is a lot of contemporary thought, postmodern thought, is anti-enlightenment. So let's back up and we, we say postmodern thought. And of course, these terms have lots of meanings, some of which are very obtuse, and I don't think that way. I think in terms of clear meanings. And if someone can't explain what they're talking about clearly, that's a good sign that they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I tell that to my students. Um, uh, if your other faculty members are talking about stuff and you can't understand them, they probably can't understand it either. But anyway, modernism is simply... Uh, and it's strongly related to the Enlightenment. Modernism is the idea that knowledge should come from reason and scientific principles rather than from tradition. And our behavior should be based on reason rather than tradition. So instead of having a monarchy, because that's the way it always was, we get together and form a constitution, say what kind of government makes sense and we will reason to figure out what we want and then act rationally to implement it. So that's modernism. Postmodernism is rejecting that. Uh, some postmodernists say it didn't work out that well. You know, it was all an illusion. And other postmodernists just don't like uh, reason and they don't like democracy. And they, they feel that, um, well, you know, 
read between the lines and you'll figure out what uh, they're actually thinking. Anyway, I'm noticing some things going on. I, I'm a professor. <laughs> cool to say. <laughs> I'm a professor. And <laughs> where I live, uh, one of my older students um, lived in the same building. It was former students. He had long since graduated. And when his wife would be in the, in the elevator with me and, and the kids, she would say, he's a professor. You act respectfully to him. <laughs> I'm thinking, what? <laughs> that's, of course, they're not Americans, so that's why they think that way. Anyway, so I'm in academia, and I read online academic journal. There's, a, there's an academic newsletter. If you want to know what lunacy is going on in academia, Inside Higher Ed, I-N-S-I-D-E-H-I-G-H-E-R-E-D.com. So uh, that's a free daily newsletter that I get, you know, in my mailbox. You can sign up for it. There's something called the Chronicle of Higher Education. That's expensive to subscribe to. All administrators have to subscribe to the Chronicle. But uh, I, I occasionally subscribe. But I, you know, read Inside Higher Ed every morning. And one of the themes that there's almost, there's about five stories and a two-sentence summary of each. And then if you want, you click on and read the story. And then you can comment. So <laughs> I get into big arguments with people in the comment section. I even got banned for a while. And uh, for commenting too much, I got, I called them up and I said, what is, they said, there's nothing wrong with what you're posting. It's just the computer thought it was too much and labeled you as spam. <laughs> but, and they unspammed me. So my comments are there again. But there'll be a, a professor that'll say something to a student. And I'm not even going to repeat what they say, you know, because you can get into trouble for this. Uh, so they'll say something to the student, and then a student will complain. And then the next thing you know, the professor's being investigated or suspended or, you know, because some, and the technical term is snowflake. <laughs> so, you know, we have the what, the baby boomer generation and Gen X and uh, the millennials. Now we have, they're called snowflakes. And so those are people that are so sensitive. <laughs> and, and they have safe spaces on campuses where they can run and no one will say anything that might get them upset. And if this sounds like, are you kidding? No, it's actually happening. And then there's chief diversity officer on campus, and there's, um, you know, there's all this stuff going on. And the, uh, so you can't be too critical of students. If, oh, by the way, if you want to know about me, <laughs> if you go to ratemyprofessors.com, it's a really cool site, and you can look me up. And uh, most, of the, most of the ratings say best professor I ever had. And most of them say, really um, respect students. So, you know, I don't abuse my students, but I don't avoid challenging ideas. But it's very, we're not, you know, got to be very careful. And so 
uh, what's going on on campuses now is that generation after generation has, um, let's say, tried to prescribe what, you know, what might upset certain groups and things like that. And so we're very restrictive of speech. Um, there are whole ranges of very, you know, accomplished people that cannot speak on campus. Uh, the you know, most campuses are smart enough not to invite them. And I, you know, I'm talking about like former government officials at like secretary of state level, that kind of thing, uh, can't speak on campus because <clears throat> there will be rallies to protest. And, you know, then the protest will get ugly and they'll have to call the police and someone will get hurt. So they just skip the whole thing. So there are whole groups of speakers that can, cannot speak on campus. And the um, if you go look, you can look at this online right now. There was somebody speaking. There was a demonstration at Berkeley. And there was a counter demonstration. Counter demonstrators were like dressed in black like ninjas. And of course, they're masked so that you can't identify them. They may be students. They may not be students. But, um, you know, we're skipping the brown shirts and going straight to the black shirts. And if you don't know what that means, look it up. Look up brown shirts and look up black shirts. Well, we're already at the black shirts that are uh, on campus and uh, preventing certain things from happening. And then you look at something like feminism. And I mean, they're supposed, I mean, you know, you would make certain assumptions about feminism. Well, let me know when you encounter a feminist who, a feminist organization that speaks out against a country that oppresses women. I mean, there are a, a half dozen countries where women are essentially slaves, and you'll never hear feminists saying a thing about it uh, because uh, those countries have a cultural system that you're not allowed to criticize. And so it just gets really weird out there. And then these snowflake uh, children... There's, there's there's a woman who wrote a book, and you know she's in danger of you know being in trouble. Uh, I don't know the title of the book, and it may be Free Range Kids, but it's about free range kids, which means letting your kid go outside and play, you know, without standing there six feet away the whole time. And so I uh, people my age used to walk to school. And it, I had to walk through the woods uh, when I lived out in the country when I was in the uh, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And then when I got to, uh, uh, I guess, how did I get to school? I got driven to school in uh, second grade, third grade. And then fourth grade, I again walked. It was about four blocks. And... Just to tell you, talk about a different time. (laughs) My school didn't have a cafeteria. It was an older school. And a couple of kids would, you know, bring bring food and eat in class. But most of us walked home. It was, you know, for lunch and then walked back again. And then then there was an older kid, you know, like a fifth or sixth grader would be the would be the crossing guard. (laughs) I remember when I got to be a crossing guard, I could wear that uh, that that canvas band going diagonally across my chest. 
with a badge on it, you know, stand there and wave the younger kids across the street. Well, those are now considered free-range kids, and you can be arrested if you let your kid do that kind of stuff. So no wonder they're snowflakes by the time they get to by the time they get to college. Anyway, so I look at this um, this uh, silence of the feminists, and I look at the academic attacks on certain kinds of thought, on certain speakers on campus, on certain kinds of comments in the classroom. And then the question becomes, is there something more general going on that this, that this is a pattern that is uh, being reflected here? And I think there is, and I think it's an attack on the Enlightenment. So what is the Enlightenment? And you might think of the Enlightenment as the... Um, Imposition of reason into the culture. Now, I looked Enlightenment up on, of all things, Wikipedia. And my academic colleagues say we're not supposed to use Wikipedia because it has, <laughs> sometimes you find things wrong in Wikipedia. My response is, if you saw it, did you fix it? Why not? I mean, you know, if you see litter in the hall, do you just walk by and complain or do you pick it up? So if you see something wrong on Wikipedia, fix it. Anyway, the Enlightenment uh, was an intellectual and philosophical movement which dominated the world of ideas in Europe during the 18th century. That's the 1700s. The century of philosophy. The Enlightenment included a range of ideas centered on reason as a primary source of authority and legitimacy and came to advance ideals like liberty, progress, tolerance, fraternity, constitutional government, and separation of church and state. Now, we just, uh, in a course I teach in history of uh, culture and architecture, we just got to the Enlightenment, so we've been talking about it. And uh, put simply, um, it's the most radical moment in human history, except for maybe, you know, a little bit of things that happened in ancient Greece, because... It's the first time that reason was substituted for tradition. And in Europe, uh, actually everywhere, the traditions were monarchy and the church. And, <clears throat> you know, how, how do you choose your government? Well, it's the oldest son of the, of the monarch who just died. Well... Is that the most qualified person? Is that a good idea? Uh, is that what we want? You don't ask those questions. That That's an Enlightenment idea, just to ask those questions. Well, well who chose the, the oldest son of the monarch who just died? Uh, it's called the divine right of kings. God made the choice. You don't vote on God. <laughs> you know, is this a good God? Well, let's have a vote. That's not how it worked. Maybe it's how it works today. And we decide, you know, what is a, a good religion that leads to things that we value. But you didn't used to think that way. So uh, the ruler was uh, chosen by God, divine right of kings. And then where did values come from? Values came from the religion, from God, from faith, from the Bible, from the clergy. 
and you didn't question those things. <clears throat> and uh, if you did, you might end up in a dungeon being tortured. And that torture was for your own good. You know, this this brief, you know, if you convert under torture, you, you've saved your eternal soul. They have done you a great favor, uh, was the thinking. And then the person who said, are you kidding, was Voltaire. And Voltaire proposed this new idea called tolerance, totally radical new idea. And it didn't exist before. We have the Thirty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War, uh, different religions, typically some Protestant religion and Catholicism in Europe would have a war for 30 years or 100 years and kill hundreds of thousands of people for their own good. Because if they died under the wrong, one believed, if they died under the wrong religion, they would spend eternity in hell. So you're doing them a favor having this war and torturing them and converting them to the religion that will assure that they spend eternity at the bosom of God in heaven instead of hell. So, you know, it's only a couple hundred years ago that that's the way people thought. And, you know, 300 now, uh, by, you know, in round numbers. And so that was the Enlightenment, to bring a new challenge to um, this way of thinking. And this way of thinking was global. Was the Enlightenment takes place in Europe. But I teach a course in non-Western architecture, and we begin by looking at Eurasia, uh, and we look at five great cultures across Eurasia. Of course, there are more, but um, I see cultures as symbol systems, as worldviews of ways of existing in the world. And, you know, think of um, perspective painting. So you say, well, we exist in space, and space is this thing we can represent in perspective. I happen to be in a room right now that's somewhat cubical. Uh, let's say it's about 10 feet cube, uh, roughly. And so there, it creates a volume. I could imagine putting a three-dimensional grid in the space. Imagine you lined up a whole bunch of lasers and put some steam in the room, and you'd have a three-dimensional grid, and I could be located within that grid. We could use uh, Descartes' XYZ axis. So if we pick one of the corners of the room, take it as our zero point, and then we extend out our x-axis, our y-axis, and we count out feet or inches. And each of these um, uh, coordinates, and we can locate any point in the room. And um, we can move about in that space. So, okay, so there's space and I exist in that space. That's a Western idea from the Renaissance. People didn't, Greeks didn't think that way. Chinese didn't think that way. Just look at their art. Totally different. Um, the Greek, Greek, ancient Greeks thought of... Uh, that we were bodily holes. Say, so, yes, bodily holes in space. Well, they didn't see it as in space, just bodily holes. And so their architecture was totally different. Their painting was different. And their mathematics was different. They could go up to X squared, but not X cubed. And 
then, you know, beyond that, it just got weird, and they didn't like it. it made the, imagine a Gothic cathedral, which is a very Western thing. An ancient Greek would feel nauseous in there. So uh, each of these different cultures have these different senses of the world, different moral senses, different notions of what a human being is, and different notions of the physical makeup of the world. So I'm going to very much generalize and say that in ancient China and Japan, the underlying fundamental thing was the flow of all things, the Tao. We might say the flow of nature. And one should put oneself in accord with uh, the natural flow of things. If you read Lao Tzu's The Tao Te Ching, beautiful book. And I've you know, spent many hours reading it. I teach it. But it's not a Western point of view. It's one that um, asks us not to resist this natural order of things. And we see that in Confucianism, which is rather prescribed, but wants to see all relationships to be harmonious. And what is the role of the daughter in relationship to the father, the subject in relationship to the emperor, the emperor in relationship to the subjects? Uh, every possible relationship is prescribed, and one should attempt to act properly within that relationship to achieve harmony. Now, you then we might ask, does, is that uh, true today? or Chinese just like us, or Japanese just like us. Well, I, I don't have it in front of me, but when I, when I lecture about this, there's quotes from the book by the current president of China that talks about the desire of putting all things in harmony. And I think the American fleet in the uh, South China Sea, they consider not to be harmonious. <laughs> But they don't, you know, they think of it as the proper harmonious order of things. And our superhero uh, in China, the literature expressing this besides the Tao Te Ching, would be Journey to the West. We have the character Monkey. And Monkey has superpowers, but he is supposed to use them only in support of the community. He doesn't go out on his own. He, when he does, he gets reckless and knocks things over in heaven, and Buddha has to put him in an iron cage and put a mountain on top of him. Uh, and he's only released in order to, in order to um, help the community in its needs. And then we look at India, and in India traditionally, again, uh, but you see this sort of underlying uh, the way people think to this day. The notion is that this world is an illusion. And standing behind it is an infinite oneness. And we really should be identifying not with this illusory world, but the infinite oneness. So, yes, we might have to make a living and uh, be in this world. But in some future incarnation, we'll have the time to uh, maybe even be a monk and to work on our soul progressing until it can reach enlightenment or unity with this infinite oneness. In the Middle East, there's a notion of 
uh, as above, so below. The world was created by a creator who left instructions. <laughs> and uh, the Orthodox in the biblical religions believe that. Those instructions are in the Bible and or the other religious texts. And our job is to obey them. Um, in ancient Greece, we have a focus on the individual, but that individual is subject to fate. So taking Prometheus as a stand-in for we humans, Prometheus brought us not only fire, but the arts and sciences. And why was Zeus so upset? Because with that, humans might overthrow the gods. <laughs> I think it's happened. And uh, so Prometheus is punished by being chained to a rock. And um, Prometheus rails against this fate but accepts it. He doesn't think, you know, it's my job to overthrow this situation. In the West, uh, we have a notion of the individual but here, the moral compass is in the heart of each individual that we should do that which our moral sense tells us. Morality comes not from uh, a list of, you know, the Ten Commandments. You can go wrong following those Ten Commandments, but from your own inner sense of right and wrong. And um, the West is sort of built on the epic poems that lay down the moral sensibility of the West. Are the Arthurian romances, the tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table? In one of them, the knights are gathered at the Round Table uh, about to eat supper when the Holy Grail appears veiled. The Holy Grail, they never say what it is. It's the thing they're always looking for. And one of the knights says, I propose that we vow to go on a quest to see the grail unveiled before we eat the supper. And they all agree. But they thought it would be a disgrace to go forth in a group. So each entered the forest at a point he himself chose where it was darkest and there was no path or way. If there's a path, it's somebody else's path, not your path. And Again, being an academic, I'm very aware of how we demand of our students that they not plagiarize. Uh, years ago, I had a student who was from another culture, and I uh, this wouldn't happen today because in other cultures, they're very acclimatized to Western universities. My Chinese students of which there are a lot. I think my school's about 20% Chinese. Another thing to worry about, <laughs> not only do we import T-shirts from China, we import students from China because our high schools can't teach fractions. But anyway, uh, someone from yet another culture uh, years ago, I said, okay, uh, next week, chapter three. <laughs> and he came in next week. He said, that was a lot to memorize. <laughs> well, no, just skim it. Get the general idea. And so, very different culture. So, um, 
in academia, we have this demand uh, for originality. And we have this notion of acting out of your own center. So in another one of the um, Arthurian myths, the story of Parsifal. And Parsifal was an undefeated knight because of his purity of heart. He wasn't a—he was kind of a a natural. He wasn't sophisticated. But in one of his quests, he comes to the castle of the Fisher King. And the Fisher King has been wounded, and his wound won't heal. And his kingdom is a wasteland because the king— is symbolic of the kingdom. And Parsifal comes into the castle and he's moved to say, what ails you? But he suddenly remembers that a knight is not supposed to speak to a king until spoken to first, so he does not speak up. By not acting spontaneously and by not speaking up, he has failed the quest. And he's turned away. The king remains unhealed. And after many... Um, other adventures, he again is able to re-enter the castle, says what ails you to the king, heals the king, heals the wasteland. And so it is demanded that we act out of our own spontaneous inner nature. So think of America's favorite novel, Huckleberry Finn, and Huck Finn is helping Jim escape, and he's conflicted about it. Because he has been told, he knows, this is a, a sin and a crime. He's stealing Miss Watson's property. What did Miss Watson ever do to him? Except try to civilize him. <laughs> Make him wear shoes. And so he's contemplating turning Jim in, which the preacher and the law and Miss Watson and Miss Polly have all said is the right thing to do. And then he decides not to. And then he says... Um, He knows this is a terrible thing. He says, okay, then I'll go to hell. They're terrible words, but they were said. So we know that Jim's inner voice is a more valid moral compass than the rules of society in that case. Now, this is a dangerous way to think. You know, there's a lot of people are going to come up with the wrong path thinking this way. But that's the point that we have to... We have a society in which that is what is demanded of us, and we uh, thereby want an education which will prepare people for that eventuality. How do you do that? How do you, you know, make a society that's the one you want? A colleague of mine many years ago in talking about culture uh, described something really great, and I'll, I'll try to repeat it. And he described contrasting uh, an American Thanksgiving dinner with a Chinese formal meal, ancient Chinese. And in the Thanksgiving dinner, what do we have? We've got, you know, our natural pine wood dining table. You know, think of the Think of the Norman Rockwell painting. Um, there's, a, there's a big platter with the turkey, and it's this dead bird. It's all there. We took the feathers out of it, cut the head off, but other than that, there are the legs, there are the wings. 
uh, their potatoes, baked potatoes. These things came right out of the ground. You clean them, scrub them a bit, put them in the oven. There's broccoli, that stuff that, you know, looks the same as it did growing out of the ground. And then there's uh, wood paneling on the wall, and above the fireplace is a Kentucky long gun. And what's it saying? It's saying, we made that table out in the wood shed with our own two hands. We shot that turkey with this, with this gun. Um, we harvested this food and cooked it ourselves. Now, you know, the fact is it was a frozen butterball turkey. It's, um, it's for Mike, uh, you know, plastic laminate paneling on the wall. The gun doesn't function. The um, uh, table was bought at, uh, you know, at uh, wherever, the furniture store. But it's communicating to the kids that we, you know, do things ourselves. And then, uh, you know, not anymore because you can't fix a car anymore. It's all computerized. But let's go back a few years and imagine there's a hot rod out in the garage. Someone has a 1932 Ford. They've dropped a a, a 58 Buick engine into it. And we put on uh, uh, two four-barrel carburetors, um, bolted in a transmission from a from a Pontiac. And so there's this real hands-on engagement with the world. If you, what you want to do if you get the opportunity is go out to the wood shop. And are you going out to the wood shop again? <laughs> and so you grow up with this kind of hands-on um, um, value, values. In when China just started to open in the in the oh uh, early mid seventies, <clears throat> it was a while before Americans could go. The first people to go was actually one of my students went. She was had a Chinese passport. She was had both American and Chinese passports, and then the Chinese invited the sympathetic groups you know, mostly American leftists. And in one of them was Arthur Miller, the famous playwright who did um, did Death of a Salesman. And he comes back, he writes an article for Atlantic Magazine, and he describes being uh, taken to a factory. And there's all these rows of tractors. And he says to their guide, what, what are those tractors? And... He says, well, they don't work. <laughs> the steering doesn't work. He said, well, how'd you make so many of them? Well, nobody noticed. Well, he says, well, didn't somebody drive one? And they said, drive one? We're engineers. We wouldn't drive a tractor. And so, you know, very different attitude about what an engineer does. Um, uh, imagine a... I'll sort of project onto cultural characters. I don't know if I get in trouble for this. But imagine out in the oil field, and there's an American uh, high-up executive and a Saudi high-up executive in a Saudi oil field, and there's a blowout. You know, one of the oil wells blow, and they have to go in and clamp on a uh, a new valve. And... (laughs) The American engineer, the American executive's response might be, 
great. Let's get in there. Roll up our sleeves. I haven't been in the field for 10 years. Like, you know, this is really great. Let's do this. And the Saudi engineer's response is, uh, let's get a Palestinian engineer in there to to fix that. Let's get a Palestinian mechanic to fix that. I don't, I don't get in the spray of oil. I'm a Bedouin. You know, we're royalty. Uh, so different cultural attitudes about the hands-on thing. Um, what is the what might the Chinese meal be in contrast to this American Thanksgiving? Well, the table might be black lacquered with 20 layers of lacquer on it, almost to a plastic mirror finish. And then the food has been chopped up into small pieces to disguise what kind of animal or plant it's come from and then covered in a sauce uh, so that you've disguised its natural origins rather than uh, shown them up as we do with our dead turkey. And so that it tells you the closer you are to nature, the lower down in the social scale you are. The further you are from nature, the higher up in the social scale you are. So our cultures can communicate these different things. And we've uh, adopted this culture of the enlightenment, of self-sufficiency, of using one's own reason, of thinking for oneself. Remember, one of the most important essays by Ralph Waldo Emerson is called Self-Reliance. And maybe for the past 20 years, we've been working against that. You know, we've been trying to obliterate that. You know, our uh, postmodernist thinkers maybe be very happy with these, shall we call them, snowflake children who... uh, have never been out playing on their own, who are, uh, don't think for themselves. I, you know, I look at my students and uh, to exaggerate a little bit, I started teaching in 69. 68 was when it was really rough. The students had taken over the school. It was a total zoo. 69, they were still running the school, but it was a little bit more organized. And they would let you know what, what they thought. And I would say to my students, you know, like, what are you reading? And I'd learn things I didn't know about. I have, uh, uh, my students today are fantastic. They're well-read. They can write. They um, are studious. But I don't hear any original ideas from them. And, I, you know, their professors stomp their originality out of them and just get them to conform. And... Uh, So there are these older values. I'm going to read something that I put together a while back. And some interesting figures. Uh, Rainier Maria Rocha in Letters to a Young Poet. There is only one way. Go within. Search for the cause. Find the impetus that bids you write. Put it to this test. Does it stretch out its roots in the deepest place of your heart. And I won't go on because I'll, I'll do some more, but you can look these up. They're in my book, Visionary Creativity, but if you just go to quotes, Rilke, or James Joyce in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man has Stephen Dedalus, his alter ego, say, I will tell you what I will do and what I will not do. 
I will not serve that in which I no longer believe, whether it call itself my home, my fatherland, or my church. And again, he goes on. Martha Graham writes, There is only one of you in all time. This expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. And then Steve Jobs, in his famous Stanford commencement address, if you haven't read it, look it up. I don't know if they have a recording of it. I better check YouTube. But <clears throat> it's widely published. Just put a Steve Jobs Stanford address. This is a graduation address he gave. You've got to find what you love. And that is as true for your work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. And again, it goes on. So um, this is a culture that we once had. And I'm wondering if we uh, still have it if that's what we're teaching. And you would hope that what you would provide students is the tools to think for themselves rather than rather than what to think. And I would hope to expect from my students, you know, things I hadn't anticipated, things that had never been thought before things that they are originally thinking. And so there was this unique culture, I'm going to call it the West, which is, you know, not uh, maybe the best term. And people describe uh, Western culture as something that came about due to a unique combination of uh, Hellenism, of Greece, and of the biblical traditions, and they came together to create, so Judaism and Greece come together to create Christianity, and that's the foundation of the West. I'm going to not agree with that. The Christianity is an invading Middle Eastern religion of authority, and um, uh, that's not native to the European and later American souls. And that something unique happened around 1000, 1100 A.D. And it began with those Arthurian romances and the Gothic cathedrals. And it had announced a totally new approach to the world. So, for example, in uh, 1107, we get a book called Natural Questions, by Adelard of Bath, and in it he says that the way we can know the world is through natural causes, that we need natural causes to explain natural phenomena, not supernatural causes, that we have to avoid supernatural causes, and nature is a closed system. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed, and we should only ally, we should only rely on experiment and not authority. So here we have the same time as the Arthurian romances, the same time as the Gothic cathedrals, 
we have laying down the principles of modern science, that it should work not by authority, but by experiment, that matter can be neither created nor destroyed, and that we can explain natural phenomena only with natural causes, not supernatural causes. Now, that doesn't, you know, you can't prove that. Um, you can always say, oh, supernatural causes cause that. How would you disprove it? You couldn't. But if you lay those down as your postulates, you then get modern science, which has been pretty successful. Uh, there are criticisms of it. We may talk about that in future shows. But there's a suddenly unfolding of the world that crystallizes into um, human social organization with the Enlightenment based on science, reasoning, the value, infinite value of each individual person, the uh, equal value of each individual person. And I see that as now all under attack. Um, there's one of my favorite writers is Virginia Postrel, and one of her books is called uh, The Future and Its Enemies. And she, she divides uh, the culture into dynamists and stasists. I don't know that those are the best terms, but <clears throat> dynamists are people who believe in the future, and they are open to it. And that's not easy. We don't know what the future's going to bring. Um, and, uh, you know, dynamists say, bring it on. And that's what makes human life. And it does in this culture of the past thousand years. Uh, maybe we're ending it because stasis believe there are two kinds of stasis. Those that don't want any change at all. And those that say, I love this, this, this one, that we're all in favor of change as long as, what, no, we're all in favor of the future as long as we control it. <laughs> and people really believe that. I subscribe to a science magazine called New Scientist, and it comes out of England. And you can see these European values, these English values, where they take it for granted that you can't just go willy-nilly and do things like genetic engineering or create new DNA technologies. It's got to be decided by the community what you're allowed and not allowed to do. You know, I can just see uh, Thomas Edison have his, okay, next invention here, the phonograph, the light bulb, the movie, <laughs> the movie camera. Uh, we're putting it out for a vote. <laughs> Are we going to have movies or not? Everybody vote. Are we going to have electric lights? You get to vote. And uh, where's that at? Uh, and uh, I shouldn't put it that way because that's how a lot of people agree with that. A lot of people see it that way. A lot of people want it that way. And then there are those of us that, you know, are open to individual creative minds creating things that we can't predict. We don't know what it's going to be. And we're going to try to be open to it. If we don't like it, we'll come up with alternatives. But to say they can't do it until we all have a vote um, 
or even, you know, <laughs> they don't even vote in Europe anymore, right? It just goes to the bureaucracy in Brussels. And they now have hundreds of thousands of bureaucrats uh, running Europe, you know, deciding uh, how long and short you can cut hair, how how you have to slice cheese, maximum and minimum thicknesses. Everything in their lives is regulated by these bureaucrats. Well, uh, if you've just tuned in, this is John Lobel. This is Visionaries. We're here every Monday at uh, 10 a.m. New York time, other times around the world. And I'm talking about the Enlightenment and <clears throat> this invention that for the first time in history, somebody said, let's uh, sit down and figure out what we want here as opposed to what's the tradition and leading to democratic government, science, uh, reason, uh, you know, the explosion of medicine, tripling of the lifespan, on and on. And I see it as under attack everywhere I look. And one of the criticisms of the Enlightenment is, well, you know, the great Enlightenment document, two of the great Enlightenment documents in politics are the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution. Well, uh, they condone slavery. So therefore, the Enlightenment is uh, racist and evil. Uh, yeah, it wasn't perfect on day one. Uh, slowly, they got rid of slavery in Europe and America. Still slavery in lots of the rest of the world. But uh, the British first stopped the slave trade in the British Empire and then outlawed slavery and America eliminated slavery. But then you ask, what's wrong with slavery? And you say, well, it's, you know, a violation of fundamental human rights. Well, wh who says? Where'd that I That's an Enlightenment idea. So to say we should overthrow the Enlightenment because it wasn't perfect on day one. Uh, it had bad things like women weren't equal citizens, women couldn't vote, uh, we had slavery— well, the Enlightenment embedded all the values that changed that, that said that's not right, to say we got to fix that. <clears throat> so people today who say, oh, we just want to improve uh, on the Enlightenment, it was incomplete, uh, I'm suspicious of that. Uh, it's usually when I look further, I find that it's a subterfuge for something else. They really don't like it. I remember some editorials in the New York Times a couple of years ago. There started to be, even before Trump, there started to be this growth in populism and a an attack on elitism. And it was an editorial in the Times that said, well, if you were having brain surgery, wouldn't you wouldn't want, you know, some average slob operating on your brain. You'd want some elite surgeon who went to an elite school and is at an elite hospital. Well, you know, there's a, there's a form of argument called a straw man. You know, you're, you're attacking something that's not there. 
And yeah, of course. But that doesn't mean that, um, you know, the New York Times starts with that. But what they really mean is, um, since we're the New York Times, our opinions are more valid than yours because we went to elite colleges and we went to elite graduate schools and we work for an elite institution. Well, to coin a phrase, fooey on them. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't see it that way. Uh, the, um, the, this elitism is really uh, part of a program, I think, of wanting to return an aristocracy. You know, there's this, we notice that uh, the richest counties in the United States are all around Washington, D.C., that government workers are paid twice as much as workers in the private sector for doing the same kind of work. You know, some group of people have hijacked the place and taken it over. It's not just the billionaires who buy themselves uh, congresspeople, of which there are some great shows <laughs> on this station. Boy, PRN does a really good job of covering corruption in the government. But um, it's, uh, it's everywhere. You know, there are all these people, there are all these people that uh, think that they, you know, think they should be running things, think they should be telling us what to eat. And so, you know, that elitism, uh, I think, is part of the anti the anti-enlightenment, part of an attack on the democratic rational values. You know, we all can think, not just the ones that went to Ivy schools, and uh, God forbid we should have access to information, be able to think for ourselves. So listen, it's getting time to wind up, and uh, next week we're going to have back John David Ebert. We're going to talk about... Uh, more about the French post-structuralist thinkers. And uh, this has been John Lobel. This has been Visionaries. Catch us every Monday on prn.fm and find our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. So see you again next Monday and have a great week.